That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. This is Totally 80s. The podcast dedicated to the music of the greatest decade ever. So, turn up your Walkman, loosen that scrunchie, and get ready to talk 80s with your host... Lindsay Parker. Hi, I'm Lindsay Parker from Yahoo Entertainment, and welcome to Totally 80s. We love hearing from you, so why not take a second to follow us at Totally 80s on Facebook and Instagram, or email us your comments and show ideas to podcast at totally80s.com. Okay, I am completely stoked today on Totally 80s. We are stripping things back, so to speak. We are going back to the heyday of Hollywood's Sunset Strip in the 1980s and chatting with um, two rockstars from two of the biggest bands to come from that magical scene and responsible for two of my favorite albums to come from that scene. And we are going to talk about what it was really like to walk that boulevard of broken dreams, broken or otherwise. <laughs> for some people, what they weren't quite so broken. So yeah. first, yeah, first, we have a metal guitarist, veteran metal guitarist, and an LA native like myself, who not only put the guns in LA guns, but put the guns in Guns N' Roses. He's also played with Nikki Six, Gilby Clark, and with Ricky Rocket, it's Tracy Guns. Hello, Tracy. Yes. And then speak <laughs> of the devil, it is Ricky Rocket, the guy who journeyed to this, not an LA native, the guy who journeyed to the strip from Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. And just like the song, Cry Tough. He made his dreams happen as the drummer of Poison, the man himself, Ricky Rocket. How are you guys doing today? I'm, as you can tell, very pumped to talk with you guys today. We're great. We're great. Yeah. I haven't I haven't seen you jump up and down yet, though. Yeah, well, you know, it's going to happen. We'll take her out later. Okay, yeah. My three favorite albums to come from this scene are the first Poison record, the first L.A. Guns record, self-titled, and the first Faster Pussycat record. All classics of the genre. Tammy is with us in spirit. Um, but before we kind of go back to the era and how you guys got your start on the strip and how how those albums came about and stuff, like, you guys go way back. I mean, I've mentioned yeah, that yeah, you yeah. played together in uh, Devil City Angels, but, you know, that was about five years ago. So, I mean... How far back do you guys go? You must have been hanging out on the strip and in Hollywood together back in the 80s, right? Well, the I think Ricky and I did our first gig all together uh, at Madame Wong's West. It was uh, Poison upstairs, L.A. Guns and Hollywood Rose downstairs. Do you remember that, Rick? I do. Yeah. yeah Kim so Fowley put that together. That was a long exactly. time ago. Whoa. Yeah. I was a Hollywood fan, uh, Rose fan because... That was the first band Brett and I ever saw here right. in Los Angeles. So, and for people listening who don't know, that was basically the what became Guns and Roses, correct? Hollywood Rose. Well, well, Hollywood Rose and LA Guns had sex, and then yeah, something like that. That was really weird. Tell us about that, <laughs> please. Tell us about that. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> But see, that's the impression I get from all of these bands. It's like, you know, 
it was a little bit, for lack of a better word, it was kind of incestuous, right? You all knew each totally. other. You were swapping band members, swapping other things. I don't know. We didn't. But, <laughs> did you not? We didn't. No. I've heard that Slash auditioned for Poison, though. He did. You know, that was really the only member change we ever did during that time. I mean, later, of course, years, years, years later. But Right, right. I've I've actually interviewed Brett Michaels. Correct me, Ricky, if I'm getting the story right or not. But several people auditioned, obviously, for the job that CeCe DeVille got. And not everyone was unanimous that it would be CeCe. Like, I mean, CeCe got it. But one dissenting member wanted Slash, which I think it all worked out for the best because I don't feel like Talk Dirty to Me would have made sense if Brett was saying slash pick up that guitar and talk to me or hit it slash it just doesn't have the same ring to it but there was a moment <laughs> uh, where it there could have been this alternate universe where slash yeah. was a poison yeah that's for sure um you know the most ascending member was the member that was leaving which was matt smith <laughs> uh, okay. uh yeah he thought he but he never really met cc so at the time there was a guy that was in joe perry's band for a while and so we liked him too. We auditioned 56 people, uh, but our criteria, we didn't want like a GIT kind of really techno kind of guy. We wanted somebody that definitely had the feel and the swagger and the, you know what I mean? You had really understood what uh, what we were trying to do. And uh, Slash That's did. why I didn't get the gig. Did you audition, <laughs> yeah. Tracy? He's a GIT guy. No, did no, I didn't. No. No, because I was too busy uh, getting CC in the band and, you know, listening to Slash. So I was like kind of this liaison, never even dawned on me. I was an LA gun. Well, can I venture to say that or assume that at some point, uh, Ricky, when you were looking for a guitarist for Poison, that you put an ad in the recycler? Because it seems like that's how a lot of bands came together. People, there was no Craigslist back then. It was all either Recycler or Rock City News or L.A. Rocks, those magazines back in the day. You know, I don't remember what we advertised in or if it was just flyers or how we did. I Honestly, I don't remember. Uh, that We absolutely could have. Recycler was the thing, man. I wish we still had the Recycler. I wish we still had BAM magazine. What a great Bam, paper. Right? Bam, music Connection still around, but we had music BAM. Music Connection. L.A. Rocks. Rock City News, and then the Recycler was basically a printed version of Craigslist back in the day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. to get anything. Right, yeah. And so many bands advertised a Recycler. And I do want to ask before we get into some strip uh, like stuff, what it was like to actually be like you know pounding the pavement in the cowboy boots on the Sunset Strip. It seemed like every ad in all of these magazines in the Recycler. They always would advertise, you know, what their influences were. And there were two bands that always came up, Hanoi Rocks and the New York Dolls. In fact, there was an article about two or three years ago in the LA Weekly that I'm, I don't remember the exact title, but it was something along the lines of this band from Finland influenced the entire Sunset Strip. And it was about Hanoi Rocks, which are one of my favorite bands of all time. So is that true that like you all were kind of influenced by this you know, sort of glitter rock band from Hunter Rocks. Big time, because they weren't they weren't popular in the states, you know. But but we all knew who they were, and they're great. And the funny thing about them is they didn't play metal at all. Yeah, you know. But but we all we all loved them, and somehow that influence definitely crept into everybody. 
Well, how did you discover them? Because, you know, like I said, there was no internet then. Like, how was it a word of mouth thing? Because they didn't even, I think they played L.A. maybe once, you know. Uh, I don't know. No, Izzy, when I was like 16 or 17, Izzy had a couple of Hanoi Rocks albums and he turned me on them. Very specific. Yeah, you know, he's like, he's like, hey, you hear about these guys? Well, I didn't know anything about them until we moved here. That's when they sort of, I didn't know anything about them until Two Steps from the Move came out. That oh. record. That's my favorite album by them. So good. Yeah. yeah. Well, Bob Ezrin produced it. And, you know, so of course he's an amazing producer. And I remember hearing him at like five in the morning, like we had like a clock radio that turned on and they were actually on the radio, believe it or not. And I was like, wow, this is cool. But uh, I mean, we were more back east. We were more influenced by like, you know, Aerosmith and of course, Van Halen and uh, everything, really. I mean, I I came, I loved the Glitter Rock era of David Bowie and Mata Hoople and all that kind of stuff. Um and then, uh, of course, even stuff like Leonard Skinner. I mean, there's like, there's so many influences, I feel like, that made up what Poison finally became. Yeah. But then when we got here, uh, there was so much going on. It, they were kind of past signing the Motley Crue type bands. When we got here, that's what we were told. We're done with that. We have our eye on a band called Malice, and we, you know, think that really super heavy stuff is where it's going to be, loudness and stuff like that. But then, you know, you had Club Lingerie, and you had, like, Specimen and that whole Batcave scene and all that stuff, all that sort of what they called death rock at the time, not I'm really so goth. I'm so stoked that you mentioned them. I'm the biggest Specimen fan. I saw them at Fender's Ballroom with Doctor and the Medics, and I have a T-shirt. It's my rarest. I wow. wish I was wearing it right now. It says Specimen Offenders Ballroom. It's the most cherished T-shirt I own. Like, I'm really happy that you're sort of threading the connections because Death Rock was happening in L.A. in a big way at the same time. Well, that's that's where I got some of my early look from, you know, like the long jacket and the cop hat. That I stole, I'll be honest, I stole right from a Death Rock person I saw. I'm like, that's freaking cool. Dark eyed makeup on, this top hat pulled down and this long jacket. And I'm like, that's cool. We started promoting at those clubs too. We didn't stop at just on the strip. We went everywhere. And I think we started to get some of those people to come over that maybe weren't so committed to that lifestyle that were like kind of open to, to stuff. And then we started to change a little bit. They started to change a little bit. Everything started to just change over time and then i think the record companies kind of got a second look and went hmm maybe this thing with like some makeup and everything isn't quite over yet you know and then of course you know an explosion happened not too long after that you know at first it was it was really like we were just told straight out you guys are not getting a deal you are a day late and a dollar short you know well, I also want to point out for, you know, as as I was mentioning, I'm from L.A. And my recollection is the first L.A. Rec, uh, radio play that Poison got was on K-Rock, which was the big alternative rock station in L.A. It was not on KNAC or KLOS, which are like the hard rock stations in L.A. at the time. It was on yeah. K-Rock. So I think a lot of people, if they weren't in the scene at the time, which is why I think the scene was so magical in Hollywood then, they think it was very compartmentalized, but it wasn't. We had Jane's Addiction and we had, 
the you know the metal bands and the glam metal bands and we had clubs like scream and you know these fetish mm-hmm. fetish was one but then we had you know gazaris of course and you know the band this the clubs on the strip club lingerie you mentioned but let's go back to you keep saying when we first got here now i have so many questions for tracy because he is an la native he was living the dream of like going yeah. to fairfax high on melrose avenue with the red hot chili peppers and slash but for you ricky it was you know obviously you were one of the many people who came to hollywood with this dream of making it in la and for you the dream came true for a lot of bands if you've seen the decline of western civilization yeah. part two one of my favorite movies of all time didn't happen for everybody but tell me about your experience to come here like what was the reason and what was it like when you first got here what was your impression when you went to the strip for the first time and experienced this magical place well, I mean, where we were from, it was, you know, you had to do top 40 stuff. Now, top 40 didn't necessarily have to be a pop song that was happening, but it, it in the rock world, at least it had to be cover songs, you know? So you were basically a live jukebox. We were used to doing three sets a night, three nights a week, and uh, doing old school. I mean, we go into these record stores, right? And the punk rock scene was really happening. But the new wave and punk rock was what, the East Coast was all about at that time uh, because the over 21 crowd, uh, that's what they were into. And in New York, Philly, uh, all that. The one exception was Maryland where the drinking age was 18. So you got this younger crowd and they were getting into Quiet Riot and all this kind of stuff. But every record store that we went into, everything was punk rock. There was all these punk rock flyers and uh, everywhere. So we took that idea of do it yourself and and did it ourselves. We couldn't really play that many clubs in the tri-state area uh, because we weren't old enough. Uh, so we'd rent VFW halls and uh, skating rinks and like put on our own shows and just do it ourselves, you know. But it, in LA, it's completely different headspace. Uh, you, you, you know, you don't come here to play cover songs. You know, you come here to showcase what you, you, your original stuff. And we thought that was a great idea. So we figured out how to get here. And uh, we did it. Um, one of the first people we met was uh, Kim Fowley, who produced The Runaways, and mm-hmm. uh, he's pretty legendary. And uh, but we quickly realized after a couple months that he was kind of not the best character, and really yeah. wasn't carrying as much weight as we all thought. After Nikki Six even told us about him, you know, we we kind of kept some of those sort of punk rock. I, I want to say this some of those punk rock influences, we wanted it to be, how can I say, we didn't want to overproduce, we definitely mm-hmm. didn't overproduce the first record. We wanted it to party, we wanted it to be raw, almost mm-hmm. sloppy. And mm-hmm. then we got slagged for, for that. That's what I liked about it. And by the way, I don't know if you know this, I used to work for Bill Hine. I adopted a cat from Bill Hine. Like I literally, what the cat dragged in, I adopted a cat from Bill Hine. I'm still in touch with him. And he was the, for people listening who don't know what I'm talking about, he and his brother Wesley had Enigma Records, which was not a major label at the time. It was a smaller kind of, I wouldn't, I don't know if it was an indie indie label, but it was a more boutique label. Thank God for them. Mm -hmm. Right. We we got turned down by every label at least twice. Like Atlantic said no three times. Wow. I love Bill and Wes Hine. They did something that nobody else could figure out how to do. 
Thank God for them because nobody would sign us. We're selling out the country club two nights in a row, having lines around the block at, at the Troubadour uh, stuff uh, like every other weekend. And nobody would give us a record deal. It's the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen in my life because they were like, well, how does this work in the Midwest? How does this work on the East Coast? We're from the East Coast. It was working. Um, <laughs> give us a poster and a tour and a record. I promise you, we'll, we'll rule the world. And Bill and Wes Hines said, yeah, you think so? We said, yeah. And they said, OK, we'll give you a shot. And I like the fact that you kept it a little bit scrappy and a little bit, you know, punk. That's as I mentioned, I cited the the first self-titled L.A. Guns record and the first self-titled Faster Pussycat record as my two other favorite albums of the era. And I think they had that aesthetic as well, that kind of, you know, garagey vibe to them. And now, Tracy, we're talking about how Ricky came from, you know, this top 40 uh, East Coast environment, came out to L.A. to be able to do DIY their own thing. Your experience is very different. Like I said, you like grew up quite literally in Hollywood. You grew up not, I mean, when I say I grew up in LA, I was kind of the LA version of bridge and tunnel. Like I grew up in the Valley and the census strip was flooded with a lot of kids like myself who came from either the Valley or orange County or Riverside, San Bernardino County to like do the Hollywood thing on the weekends and hang out in the parking lot of the rainbow. And we will talk about the rainbow by the way, but you were, Grow, you were there. You grew up in this. I'm so envious. Tell me what it was like to go to go to Fairfax High, to be going to high school, like I said, with Slash. And I mentioned the Chili Peppers as well. And when I'm talking yeah. about how like the L.A. scene was more diverse and maybe people give it credit for the Chili Peppers, Jane's Addiction, all this stuff was happening at the same time. And you were right there in the nexus of it. Tell me all about it. It was more like kind of like you said earlier, like. It didn't feel like separate bands. It was just like a lot of musicians, unique musicians, you know, like everybody kind of had their own identity and we were just trying to play, you know, no, nobody thought about record deals or things like that. You know, it's just like, you know, Hillel Slovak played a Strat, Slash played a BC Rich, I played a Les Paul, you know, it was cool. <laughs> when you're from here and that just kind of becomes what you do, you don't think about it the way that people coming in from out of town do, you know, because people coming in like, okay, we got one month, we better get something rolling. And growing up here, I started doing studio work when I was 17. I'm still the same guy. <laughs> I just keep going. I don't know. But were you doing Battle of the Bands and stuff? I've seen like photos of like Slash doing Battle of the Bands at Fairfax High and like were you in like teen bands, like playing mm -hmm. like house parties or were, when yeah. were you actually playing the strip? Like, did you start doing that as a high schooler? Yeah, I guess high school. I think the first place I played at with the very first version of L.A. Guns was uh, Gazzari's, you know, when I was like, I don't know, 16. Gazzari's, that's where that's the home of the Miss Gazzari's Dance Contest. As seen yes, it is. Decline <laughs> of Western Civilization, part two. Uh, Gazzari's is long gone. Gazzari's is long gone. Did you ever meet Mr. Gazzari? Of course. Yeah. <laughs> hey, boy, come in here. <laughs> Actually, foxy let me... Foxy guy. You're a foxy, foxy guy. guy. <laughs> let me, since I keep bringing up Decline, I'm, you know, I love Decline. I saw Decline in the movie theater, Decline 2. I like Decline uh, Part 1 as well. I saw it in the theater, like, the weekend it came out, like, the Friday it came out. How do you feel? Um, I don't remember, Tracy, if you were in it. Poison were we definitely were. in it. Were you asked to be in it? You should have been in it at that point. Uh, 
I think, I don't know, it was a long time ago. Odin was in it, and Sean Duncan is a drummer for L.A. Guns, so that counts. I am fascinated by that because people cite the whole Odin thing because the lead singer of Odin was basically saying if we, you know, we're talking about like people who move here to make it. He was famously in the hot tub saying like, if we don't make it, like we're going to kill ourselves or whatever. We're going to die. He's literally saying, and there's all these other people in bands. I don't know who they were, who had no plan B, who were like, you know, it's like the famous scene where Penelope Spheris is like, well, what will you do if you don't make it? And they're like, but I will. Okay. But what if you don't? But I will. And it's just like this circular conversation. Of course, not everyone can have the success that Poison or L.A. Guns did. How do you feel in general about that movie? Like I said, Poison were in it. Uh, it how depicted the scene? Because it kind of was sort of later in the 80s. I think it came out in 88. I think it it, it kind of cornered the darker, like more metal side of everything. But it didn't cover, you know, the scream aspect. You know, the bordello aspect, cat house thing. I think, I don't know why it didn't really. It's a great movie, you know, and Penelope's great. Um, but like Ricky and I were kind of in two scenes at the same time. So I think our view is bigger. Like yours, your view is bigger. You know, you're talking about specimen, you know, and, you know, cool stuff like that. And Lords of the New Church and Stibbe, you know, all those bands came through. You know, and we went and watched everything, right, Rick? I mean, we were just into everything. Yeah, absolutely. And a little known fact, Brett Michaels was a huge Stiv Bader's fan. So it's everybody thinks, oh, he didn't, you know, they, you wouldn't take him for that. But yeah, there were so many amazing uh, alien sex fiend. Oh, my God. You know, you are so speaking my language. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. I Yeah, I mean, I. I love the movie, but, you know, some of the bands weren't or the scene wasn't shown in the most, you know, positive. Like, you know, there's a lot of comic relief in that movie, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. I want to go back real quick, though, to you like the first Poison record and the first L.A. Guns record. And Jim Faraci produced both of our first records. Yeah. So you have the same. Yeah. So we had. Yeah. Really coming from he almost, you know, carved out. Or what is it like you know, sleaze rock? Like, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. What. I got to tell you this story, though. OK. Yeah. So we had this person. I, I won't say her name, but she used to work at A&M Records and she wanted to manage us. And we went over to A&M one day and we heard the phone pick up and we heard the name Kenny Austin. Well, Ken Austin was Atlantic Records, right? Mo Austin's son. We did a little research. We heard that name. So we went, we have a name. We literally took our tape, went over to Atlantic Records, went up to the front desk and said, Ken Austin wants to see us today. And he told us to come over here because Jim Faraci said, we're the next rat. And he said, oh, OK, come up. We literally went up to his office, played it, and he loved the tape and gave us money to do a demo. I swear to God, this is true. Amazing. And it was literally because of that, how we heard that old thing go down. I mean, we just BSed our way through. Everything. Right. I mean, you gotta do what you gotta do. I want to um take take it a little back before all you know. You guys broke big, and also before all the bands that were in decline too broke big. You mentioned Motley Crue, Ricky, and I want to talk about like kind of the bands that you felt laid the groundwork for you guys early in the strip. Quite right's been mentioned. Ben Halen, Motley Crue. Were there are, were those the bands that sort of like kind of set the template? 
for bands like Poison to come and and make their own mark? Or are there other bands that yes. I'm not mentioning? Well, there might be a couple of others, but I mean, absolutely, Van Halen and Quiet Riot sort of broke through, broke rock and roll through again, and and later, of course, Twisted Sister. But uh, and they were playing; they played Harrisburg and all those areas. We'd go see them play and try to make friends with them and try to yeah. open for them. And you know, we were too small back then to do that stuff. We had a little bit of an Aerosmithy thing going on that wasn't quite so metal. So it's a funny sometimes when people go, "Poison wasn't metal." Uh, hello, newsflash. But I want to also circle back to what you were talking about with like Alien, Sex Fiend, and and. Uh, specimen and stuff like that a lot of those bands their influences were bowie and a lot of the glitter era stuff and mata hoople and ours were that but then where they were different um they didn't have like the big rock arena like van halen riff kind of stuff in right. their library where we sort of did and that was what was different about it but uh, it was amazing how you'd sit down and get along with these people that we're all supposed to hate or whatever right you know that yeah. there was completely from different scenes but we had this girl that was in college her name was deb rosner and deb became our publicist and she was full-on death rocker loved that stuff and would get us in all these fanzines and all these fanzines were like these punk rock death rock new wave publications and i think that's why some of that audience came to see poison which was really kind of cool because that's just the world she knew but she happened to love us because she'd love the in the like the glitter rock influence that we had going on so um so it's you know the, it, tracy's right there's this big happy family it seemed like later all this stuff started to break apart in the press when everybody started to be you weren't cool and you weren't cool and you I was cooler than you. And, and it just has gotten so silly anymore. <laughs> That's interesting because, you know, we're talking about rivalries or whatever. I want to talk about what has sometimes been called in rock mythology as the flyer wars. As I mentioned, the Internet did not exist in 1980, whatever. And nowadays, if a local band wants to let get the word out that they are playing a show and here's where you could buy tickets in advance, like. You know, you could do that on any on social media or whatever. You could tweet it. You could Instagram it. You could whatever. That was not an option back then. You guys had to pound the pavement. And actually, you know, I want to talk about the flowers, the whole pay to play thing, which I think still exists in L.A., but was kind of the name of the game then. And uh, the fact that, you know, I've I've talked to I've actually talked to Brett about this, about being in the parking lot of the rainbow with the flyer wars and flyering and and the flyers that were in the cheapest color at Sir Speedy, poison green, the green flyers. You know, I feel I feel like musicians would actually have more local success if they continued to flyer. These OK, days. <laughs> let's make it happen again. Tell me about that. Tell me why you think that. Oh, look. There's no better advertising than a billboard. You know, it's like, you know, eat at Joe's. You know, I mean, <laughs> when you're walking down the street or driving down the street and you see, you know, an outrageous picture of a rock and roll band, that's going to get you way more value than any, you know, thinking you're reaching people on social media. Well, I want to hear both of you guys tell me about the whole flyer thing when, you know, you made mm. your flyers when you went to Kinko's or Sir Speedy, which was like, I think the cheaper copy mat there was, or, you know, the whole, it, there was an art to this. There's a reason why I don't even know how many years later, I still have these LA guns flyers at a shoebox at my house. There's a reason why I didn't throw them out. 
there was a real art to this and it could make or break whether you sell out a show or not, whether you oh, break big time. Tell me about the art of flyer making and art more importantly, dissemination. Like, you know, you had, like I said, you had to kind of work the streets really to make this happen. Yeah. I, you know, it, it was, I think poison did a much better job than LA guns, but you know, we would, I don't remember I used to, I think Mick did the artwork and then we got it printed out. And then Nikki, our drummer, he had the 66 Buick LeSabre. And we would just like drive straight up to a place, get out really quick, like here, 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 here. And then drive to, you know, like, let's just say, you know, go to the whiskey first. And then everybody's walking between the whiskey and the, and the Roxy and the rainbow. And so we would run up to the rainbow and Nikki would drive the car up there. So we were, we were pretty lazy about it. You know, we just like drive from spot to spot here, 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 here. Well, the DIY, the DIY experts at Poison, I don't think we're lazy about it. And I've told no, anyone who will, I've told anyone, you know, we're talking about DIY, working hard. Anyone who'll listen is whether or not this music was your cup of tea. And it wasn't everyone's cup of tea. It was obviously very, very much my cup of tea. There's no denying that these bands worked friggin' hard. They earned their success. They earned their record deals because they worked really hard. They, mo you know, I know Poison weren't lazy about it. So no, not no. Poison were not lazy about. It. Well, Ricky, tell me about you know the second jobs you guys. Pretty, I mean, when you weren't actually playing, you were getting people to go to your gigs. Yeah, that was one of the things I remember talking about going, well, who who are we going to put in the band? Is it going to be Slash or this guy or CC or whatever? You know, CC's parents own a print shop. Um, <laughs> I never knew that. Oh, my we'll God. We'll put that funny. in the plus column. <laughs> Did they own Sir Speedy? No, it wasn't a Sir Speedy. Uh that's funny. Oh my reason. God, I can't think of the name of it now. But CC worked there, which was explained why when Brett gave him a flyer back in the day before he ever auditioned for us, that he threw it in the ground. He was so tired of seeing flyers. Um, <laughs> so I was like, well, there's that. <laughs> a lot of trees died for, for a metal. Lot I have of to say. A lot of trees died for metal. So uh yeah, so we would go out and party till two, three in the morning, come home change and then go back out in like sweatpants and flyer with the glue and we'd wait because they would do it at most bands would do it at two in the morning when they were done they just stay in what they had on a lot of times we'd wait till four in the morning and go over i mean the glue yeah. was still wet on hans Naughty's uh flyers let's say or who there was a couple bands who were pretty good at it i gotta tell you yeah. and there, and there was some definitely some wars going on there but we would do it and then we got people to, to work with us. I remember we were scared to death because uh, uh, we were playing the troubadour like a little bit too often for a minute there. And we're like, we got to figure another way to reach people. And Sammy Hager played uh, like at the four, the, I don't know, somewhere uh, in LA. And we went down there and hammered at people coming out of the concert just hammered that and that was the next it was november 13th i think or november 12th i think that we played the troubadour and the result of that work was insane like we had so many so many freaking people there it was like everybody couldn't get in it was like it was crazy but we did all kinds of like 
little dirty tricks, you know, for like if we had to open for somebody, we'd say right after this, we're having a kegger party, come down and drink before it's all gone. Everybody would leave. You know? Oh, you my know, God. Like that. That <laughs> the only thing is we had to pay for beer, but, you know, you did play dirty. Well, mm-hmm. you're talking about like how you would snipe the flyers, like put them up in the middle of the night. But from what I recall, you know, I've mentioned the rainbow and we got to talk more about the rainbow. That was kind of the hub of everything. You know, even if you were too young to get in the rainbow or didn't have any money to drink, you could hang out in the parking lot of the rainbow or sit on that brick wall in front of the rainbow and just collect flyers all night. And be honest with me, guys. Did you like flirt with girls and be like, hey, come to my show and we'll hang out afterwards. Here's a flyer. Because I got that line a lot. Like, hey, you're cute. Want to come to my show? Here's a flyer. Buy a ticket. We'll hang out. I usually saw through it. Didn't always, to be honest. But, you know, there was a lot of flirting going on. We never left any stone unturned. I didn't care what the girl looked like. You know, my my door was always open very wide. You know, I mean, I'm a drummer. What do you want? <laughs> so, so did the whole reason behind all this, you know, a very aggressive, you know, grassroots street team marketing that bands like you guys did was because of the pay-to-play thing. Like, basically, if you didn't get people to your show, you could actually lose money and not be able to pay for your bachelor apartment on Yucca Avenue where, you know, it was like five people to a room or whatever. We didn't have any bachelor apartments, right, Rick? A lot of the bands I knew, they were living in, like, very small apartments, studio apartments. I think Poison, too, we all lived together. Like Like the Monkees. Yeah. Oh, well, you lived yeah, in a yeah. warehouse. Yeah. yeah. You lived in a warehouse. Really? Didn't you live like above like a garage or so, like an auto shop or something like that? Uh, it was a laundromat. Okay. That's yeah. even better classic Hollywood story. But can you explain what the pay to play thing was? Because basically you guys could explain it better, but it was very important that you sell tickets to survive. Well, what what it was is basically they'd give you like 40 tickets. And if you sold all of them, you could play basically because they wanted to guarantee at least 40 people would come in the door. We did that one time and we brought in like 150 people. And then we cut a deal with Eddie from the Troubadour, who's still around, by the way. And he said, you don't have to do that anymore. I'll pay your rent. Just play here once a month. And so that's what we did. But we'd go to like the outskirts of LA and go play top 40 bars to make money. Really? So that way, that way we stayed off the circuit. And nobody knew, you know, that what we were doing. Yeah. We played, you know, Covina and stuff like that. And West Covina rather. And all these places, the Timbers, you know, things like that, where we could do all the top 40 stuff that we did back in Pennsylvania. Wow. Well, can we talk about the rainbow? The rainbow still exists and it's my happy place it actually is untouched by time like you walk in there and it feels like it's 1987 in the best possible way the parking lot is different now it's not quite like i don't i actually wonder if now maybe you guys know like on the census strip back then you could just kind of loiter and hang out you could hang out you could and no one no cops shooed you away that does not happen on the strip now the parking lots are empty there's no one just hanging out on the street i don't know if like actually legally that got like it did no it did it got yeah yeah Yeah, that's totally would yeah i don't know why i mean during i don't know i would say up to like possibly even 1990 it was full on right like it was full on 
And then, but like around 90, 91, there was something where people just couldn't do that anymore. Yeah, there was a new mayor and they they changed everything down there. They started buying up all kinds of stuff and gentrifying it. So West Hollywood completely changed. Yeah. I don't know if it was its own city in the 80s or not. So a historian could tell me that. I don't remember. But it, they got their own mayor and things started to change rapidly. I see. And a lot of people wonder why it couldn't go back to that. Even if you remove that, like literally the dyna- the, there's less rock represents less of the music business anymore unfortunately and especially in this town now there's a lot of latinas and a lot of you know different there's a whole nother genre of music out there that you know our youth listen to so i don't know if we could get back to there although there's a lot of promising stuff stolen prayer and some of these new bands coming out that are you know holding the torch you know it's really exciting stuff absolutely so the rainbow though back in that heyday you could go there you could go to the census strip and just hang out all night and you know if you were underage you could just hang out and not going although some you know most of the clubs in at that time at least on the strip specifically were all ages the roxy always was the whiskey always the troubadour down on san monica boulevard was from what i recall i mean the 80s it was the 80s what do you i from what i recall the rainbow like you had to be 21 to get in as a dude, but if you were a girl, you could. Right, right, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, you know, the, the rainbow is, like you said, it's kind of stuck in 1987-ville, 1986-ville. Uh, you know, a lot of relationships were made in the rainbow parking lot, but, you know, um maybe even some babies i you know yeah yeah I mean, <laughs> do you know that local uh they're still around actually a local band from hollywood called motorcycle boy who i was of big. course yeah they had a song called i hate the sunset strip it was it went hi i hate the sunset strip heavy metal shit and there was a line that said if you're really lucky you can meet the disease infested girl of your dreams in the parking lot of the rainbow that was their there you line. Go. they were like trying to be all punk rock and whatever but i like you know didn't take a side i love the rainbow that was kind of where all a lot of the flirtations and the flyer warring and the flyer exchanging it all kind of took place there i would call the rainbow the epicenter of our scene for sure because that's just where everybody ended up. And if it wasn't for that community that kind of came out of the, the rainbow parking lot, it wouldn't have held the way it did, you know, because that was the scene. That's where, you know, strangers and friends and everybody would go to start the night or go to see a show or whatever, but everything, all roads lead back to the rainbow. So a lot of bands were probably put together there. Um, a lot of ideas thrown around. Um, Good vibes, you know, it really was. Still is. Tommy Lee's sister, Athena, took us out for the first time in Hollywood. She was the first one to ever take us somewhere. She had a, her best friend was named Joey. It was a girl. And they took us out and she said, we're going to go to the Rainbow. I said, we don't have any money to get in. She goes, it doesn't matter. The parking lot's happening. And I'm like, what? 
what do you mean the parking lot's happening? And it was literally heavy metal parking lot, but in this small <laughs> little right, you know what I mean? And uh I was like, you know, wow. And and she goes, you know, and anytime you need to get away from somebody, just say, Hey, gotta do a hair check. <laughs> <laughs> Very funny. You couldn't get away from that. And yes. I'm gonna use yes. that now. I'm gonna be like, Oh, we gotta do a hair check. Sorry. Was Lemmy hanging out then? Cause he, you know, now there's actually literally a statue of Lemmy yes. from Motorhead in front because he kind of held court there by the Ms. Pac-Man machine for decades. It was like his, he was like the norm of cheers of the Yeah, Rainbow. yeah, he, he, that was his local pub. You know, that's, in, in his eyes, you know, it says, oh, I'm going to, you know, go play the video game and have some drinks. And yeah, let me, I don't know when he really started hanging out there every night, but yeah, he was a fixture there. Every time I saw him, I'd buy him a drink. Every time. Pay homage to the man. And he appreciated it. Yeah, he did. You know, he really did. He was a good dude. Yeah. Well, this has been an amazing discussion. And I feel like it's far from over. I feel like there's so much more ground to cover. I feel like we've only scratched the surface. But we do need to wrap. Can I trouble you guys to come back and talk about more Sunset Strip awesomeness on a part two episode of Totally 80s? Absolutely. Let's go. Awesome. So we will be back to be continued. Watch this space. Bookmark this page. <laughs> a special thanks to Ricky Rocket and Tracy Guns. Remember to give Totally 80s some love with a rate and review on your favorite podcast platform. And we will be back for part two. Catch you next time. This was Totally 80s, the podcast dedicated to the music of the greatest decade ever. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Totally80s. And please leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Until our next episode, catch you on the flip side. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. Like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on AutoTrader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.